0: Good morning and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. So this morning, our show is about uh, whales in the Northwest Atlantic, Um, and in particular, we're going to be looking at some of the recent mortality events related to whales in our region, the Gulf of Maine and the Gulf of St. Lawrence, Um, and we're going to explore why these mortality events have happened and how they might relate to some of the bigger questions related to changes uh, in our ocean. Uh, In the studio today, I'm excited, we have got some great folks who know a whole lot about whales, who are going to help us kind of tease out some of the things that you may have heard in headlines and the media um, about especially right whale mortalities, but others as well. Um, they're going to help us sort of figure out what's happening and what we know and what we don't know about what's happening. So my guests in the studio today are Sean Todd, the director of the marine mammal research group Allied Whale at College of the Atlantic. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for coming, Sean. And we also have Zach Cliver, who's the lead naturalist at Bar Harbor Whale Watch Company and the founder of Fluke's International Whale, whale Tours. Hi, Zach.
1: Hi, good morning.
0: Uh, thanks to both of you for coming. Um, before we dive in, uh, I just wanted to let listeners know that this is a pre-recorded show, so we won't be taking any calls today. Um, so were you guys both just returned from an important marine mammal conference that was held in Halifax, I think just last week, um, and I think we're going to learn a lot about the research findings from that conference, but before we dive in to Our topic today. Uh, I think it'd be great for our listeners to know a little bit about who you guys are and how you got into this work. So uh, why don't we start with Zach. Tell us, you're the lead naturalist and have been for a long time at Bar Harbor Whale Watch. How did you get into this work?
1: Uh, Well, I grew up on the coast of Maine on an island um, (coughs) called Eastport on the uh, Maine-New Brunswick border. I grew up in a fishing family and... Uh, I wound up attending the College of the Atlantic, and when I was a student there, went on a whale-watching trip, and we had an incredible trip out in the middle of the Bay of Funday. And that's what really sparked my interest in whales. And so when I was a student, I started working as a naturalist on whale watch boats and with Allied Whale. And so I've done that for 28 seasons. And and uh, back in 2011, I started my own company to take people on extended trips uh, around the world to see whales. And I've also worked as an observer um, on whale um, and marine mammal Um, projects in the southeastern United States with right whales and up in Alaska um, last year in the Arctic.
0: Great. So you said you have 20 years experience working, uh, looking at whales and teaching people about whales and researching whales um, in the Gulf of Maine and beyond. That's great, right? Great to have you today. Mm-hmm. Thanks, yeah. uh, Sean. How about you? What's your trajectory to the world of whales? It's,
2: it's a long, complicated story. I guess it boils down to a to a five year old watching um, the wonderful undersea world of Jacques Cousteau back in the day. Uh, I come from Britain, uh, where we don't have marine mammals, or at least we didn't used to have uh, whales or seals in any appreciable number. Um, eventually, when it came time to go and do my my graduate degrees. I came over to North America. I, I worked in Canada a lot with humpback whales, working on the uh, the, the net entanglement issues with humpbacks. Uh, ended up doing uh, a lot of work in foraging ecology, trying to work out why whales are where they are. And um, pretty much straight out of PhD, um, was hired by the College of the Atlantic as their next marine mammal professor. And uh, I've been there ever since. So I've been in the business for about 30 years. Uh, and I kind of split my time between Uh, both researching these animals and and doing what I can to advocate for their conservation and teaching the next generation of leaders and researchers uh, at College of the Atlantic who will be taking over from me, you know, once I'm no longer here. Great,
0: great. And um, so you guys are both, both based in Bar Harbor. Tell us a little bit about the relationship between Allied Whale, the research group at College of the Atlantic, and... Bar Harbor Whale Watch. Just so listeners can sort of understand what how Bar Harbor is really a nexus of whale related work.
2: I, I it's um it's a very strong relationship. Uh, uh, obviously, we have Zach, uh, who's a who's a graduate of the college and uh, has led the naturalist program at the Whale Watch for a very long time. Um, it's always been an amazing source of data. Typically. Uh, historically Allied Well has collected information using very small boats uh, you know, typically between 14 and 18 feet uh, rigid hull inflatables which limits our weather window. However the Whale Watch has much larger boats um, so it's always been good uh, to use them as a, as a sort of an opportunistic platform and for the past almost two decades now we've actually very deliberately, um, Zach has been very kind to help us uh, arrange uh, a, res- uh, a research assistant program so we have a representative of Allied Whale on every Whale, boat, Whale Watch boat that goes out from Bar Harbour. Um, as you know, the Gulf of Maine is a great place for whales, and uh, the Whale Watch operates in an area um, known as the ballpark or the Inner Innerscootig Ridges, which is a very good place to see whales. Um, so we have an excellent data gathering opportunity there. So that's a that's a good sort of longitudinal time series of data that we've had. Uh, not only are we collecting the data, but we're also nurturing young people and you know who may want to go into the business. So it's it's a good sort of career jump off opportunity for them as well.
0: You mentioned the ballpark and Interscudic ridges. Can one of you give us a quick geography lesson? Where are those places?
1: Uh, <clears throat> the uh, Interscudic ridges are about uh, sixteen miles to the east of Mount Desert Rock. And it's an area where the seafloor uh, is very mountainous. It goes from 200 feet to 400 feet and back up to 300 feet and down to 500 feet. So it's a it's a very exciting topography. And uh, the fishermen historically called it the ballpark because they hit so many home runs and grand slams of great fish catches. And when we discovered that it was uh, an excellent place for whales we started calling it uh, Whale Park too
0: okay uh,
1: so that's where we spend a lot of our time
0: I've always wondered yeah. where the name of the ballpark came from for yeah. that whale ground that's great
1: <laughs> and
2: the, uh, the, the one of the neat things we have in this area is is because the college owns Mount Desert Rock which is a lighthouse island um, about 25 miles offshore, so about the same distance offshore as the ballpark. We've both got a a fixed spot from where we can do research observations, as well as these mobile spots that the well the well operates, as well as a base from which we can launch Zodiacs offshore. Um, so we, we've got it covered. It's 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 a it's a really good um, good area to research, and we've got good logistical capacity to do that.
0: So before we jump into 2017. Um Zach, tell us a little bit. What is a a regular, what do you regularly expect to see in the Gulf of Maine when you head out onto the water, say in the middle of August? Mm. What's sort of a typical uh, diversity of species?
1: You know, it it varies uh, throughout the whole season uh, tremendously. Uh, But usually in July and August, we really depend on seeing a lot of humpbacks then. We can expect to see them. So it could be anywhere from a couple to, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, two dozen or or more. Um, We see finbacks throughout the whole season. So there's always a good chance of seeing finbacks in a typical year. But in recent years, that's really changed. Uh, dramatically, I think, for us, and in uh, what way? Well, um, this year we only had five sightings of finbacks through the whole season. And we historically, if you go back into the 90s, we really depended on finbacks in the beginning of our season. You know, we begin around Memorial Day um, and then we go right through October. And It was on the shoulder seasons that we saw a lot of finbacks. Right. So and we would search for them when the humpbacks weren't as abundant. Right. Uh, But uh, in recent years, they just haven't been here.
2: And then to add on top of that, we also have uh, the, the you know the the occasional sightings, which are really, really exciting. So we've had sperm whales, uh, we've had blue whales, we've had say whales. and um, you know, just so just so that your listeners know, um, this this is kind of an unusual situation in that whales, you know whales don't do things casually, they do things very deliberately. So the reason they in the Gulf of Maine traditionally is because the Gulf of Maine is one of these few places where enough food can be generated. Uh, for it to make sense for them as a sort of a stopover to to feed, uh, and that doesn't happen everywhere in the world. That's why I, that's why I moved from England to the United States because we have upwellings associated with uh, with the ballpark that are just unprecedented. And can so, can you
0: define a, an upwelling?
2: So an upwelling is where um, the oceanography the area combines in such a way to, to deliver nutrients from these from the deep up to the surface where they can be of use to. Uh, phytoplankton, which are the prime producers that photosynthesize at the bottom of the food web, and it just has a knock on effect so that you have this incredibly rich, diverse, and biomass heavy area. And what, what I want to put across here is, is that that's unusual. You know, not every patch in the ocean is like that. In fact, a lot of our ocean is like a desert, uh, and you need these oceanographic focusing mechanisms to create that. Intense hotspot, and the Inner Ridges is one of those places. So it's no coincidence that the Bar Harbor whale watch is there because you know they're there because this is traditionally a great place to see whales.
0: Great. So uh, you mentioned humpback and finback whales are sort of the regular, the ones that you often expect. And just uh, can you help our listeners who may not be very familiar with the individual species? Which one are they? So the humpback is the really gregarious one. Tell us a little bit about those in, those two species.
1: Yeah, the hunt, the humpback is the one that lifts its tail out of the water that uh, we can identify by the pattern on the underside of the tail and know as individuals, and they are very um, playful. Uh, they have a lot of fun behaviors. They, they tend to jump out of the water, and uh, so they often could be wh- whale watch uh, favorites. Uh, the finbacks rarely lift their tail out of the water, but they're massive. They're the second largest whale in the world and they're more like a submarine and they can be upwards of you know here um 60 or you know 65 feet um in length (coughs) excuse me um and uh they have a pattern on the right side of their head especially On, on both sides there's coloration but on the right side there's quite a lot of light color and a a swirl-like pattern that, that uh, is unique to each individual finback. So Allied Whale was the organization that discovered that you can tell individual humpback whales apart by their tails, and uh, finbacks by the color pattern and shape of the dorsal fin and marks and scars. So Allied Whale really pioneered um, the research in those two species and have maintained those catalogs. Uh, so it's super exciting for us to have this group of young people come every year. There's the, this year Year we had four um, that worked on our boats, and it's a it's a it's a super relationship to have these young scientists come here and and photograph the whales and continue to contribute to that work, and it's one of the things I enjoy the most of my. Uh, career is seeing all these young people come in, have a really positive experience through Allied Whale and the Whale watch and and then go out and do really exciting things. A lot of them were presenting at the conference this year. They are working, you know many of them have gone and gotten their PhDs and are doing super exciting work. Uh, so it just feels like uh, we're a, a feeder system for that. and uh, I think it's one of the really positive things that that um, happens here.
0: So tell us about this conference.
2: So the conference we've just been to is an international conference. It's, uh, its host is the Society for Marine Mammology, which is an international society, although it has heavy subscription from Canada and the, and the U.S. Um, this year it was in Halifax, uh, so very close to uh, up in Nova Scotia. So uh, we used the opportunity to get as many people up there from this area as we could including uh, my marine mammals class. They went up there and experienced it. Um, the, the conference is an opportunity for scientists to share what they've discovered over the past two years um, through their research and also to respond to any crises that may be happening in the field that we that we need a more immediate discussion and response to. And it's, it's shoulder... The, the conference itself is, is quite big. It's probably something like... Uh, uh, around 1,500 uh, participants, um, but it's shouldered on either side by workshops, which are typically much smaller maybe 100 to 150 people. And those are very exciting places to be because um, it's much easier to have conversations in those kinds of groups and actually direct a specific agenda where, you know, a particular cons- conservation topic you might be interested in, or conversations you might be interested in having that will help direct. Where we want to see the science move where we want to see the cons- uh, conservation go um, in particular the uh, one of the shoulder season workshops this year was the right Whale well Consortium uh, which is a, a, a group of uh, scientists specifically interested in uh, issues concerning the North Atlantic right whale and uh, it had a lot of talk about this year and what I like about that meeting is is that um, everyone who needs to be in that conversation is there at that meeting uh, and uh, you know there's no rank. Uh, we just we did essentially we sit around the metaphorical table and we we talk about what's going on and we try to figure out how we're going to how we're going to fix it.
0: And let's talk about what's going on. So um, how was how were the observations this particular season? Zach, what, what, what did you see or not see this season?
1: Well, w- it was really an unprecedented um, year in my tenure of being here for 28 seasons, Um, we had the least sightings of large whales that I've seen or we've experienced at the Whale Watch um, by far. So... uh, It was a challenging year, and a lot of the time we had to go far in finding whales. There were uh, a pretty big group of humpback whales at Graham and Ann Banks, which is 55 miles from here. And so uh, whenever we could, when the weather allowed, we would go there. you know, we're, we're very honest with everyone about what's happening, and so we had a chance to talk about what was going on before we left and explain to people clearly what the, you know what was happening with the lack of whales, and then also some reasons that we felt like the sightings were down uh, related to climate. So we had a chance to educate people uh, about the potential for climate affecting the, the sightings, and... Uh, I I feel like we rallied and we still had a lot of amazing sightings You know, we saw pilot whales at the end of the year on a couple of trips. You know, we still see a lot of porpoises and seals and dolphins, but you know, it makes it, it makes it tough when, when the large whales aren't.
0: And it was across the board, the large whales were much less present.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, and, uh, You mentioned climate. Tell us a little bit about what your thinking is related to climate and the potential absence for this year's whales.
1: Yeah, there's two things. One is climate. Um, and and it, one thing that we did come to understand as the season went on was that uh, up in Canada it, uh, and Greenland, it was very warm over the winter and spring. And that's been a general trend, right? And the Gulf of Maine is warming 99% faster than the rest of the world's oceans. So the Gulf of Maine has been warming. But to the north of us in Greenland there was a tremendous amount of ice melt and all that ice came down along the coast of Labrador and Newfoundland and blocked off a lot of the harbors. Boats couldn't even get out. At one point there was a Canadian research ship that was going to go up to Hudson Bay to study climate change in the Arctic, and there was so much ice they couldn't even get there. Uh, so all this ice came down, and the water coming into the Gulf of Maine is coming from there through the Labrador Current. So our water, w- w- therefore, was extremely cold because it was being filtered through all the ice, and and it may have been more fresh. And maybe even quicker, that's been a general trend, according to researchers who monitor the the offshore buoys, is the the water in recent years has been speeding up somewhat, coming down. And um, so we wondered if it was related to that, of all that, you know, that cold water and, uh, the same for the lobster fishermen, right? They had, they experienced a lot of cold water early in the season. They, a lot of them kept their gear out offshore. Uh, the, the shed shed came late, um, in the Northern part of the Gulf of Maine, but in the Southern Gulf of Maine, it was very warm water. It was, a, it was a real strong, um, uh, boundary, um, between the cold water and the warm water. And, um, to the south of us, the the second factor was that um, the Menhaden population. We've we've worked really hard to try to restore that population.
0: The, the Menhaden is a small schooling fish.
1: Exactly. Yeah, yeah they're in the herring family. Uh, they their population is is centered around Chesapeake Bay, and we got a real uh, huge decrease in the amount of fish that are being caught by the commercial fishing industry, which left more menhaden in the ocean to multiply. And historically, they used to come up into the Gulf of Maine, you know, almost annually. And so in the last couple of years, we've had huge runs of menhaden. This was another year where they came up along New York, New Jersey, uh, Cape Cod, uh, tremendous amounts of menhaden. So that may have played into this scenario where a lot of the whales stayed there. You know, it's you know my my question is, did a lot of the finback whales focus on Menhaden this year and stay south and just not come you know into our area?
0: Wow, interesting. Um, and so, am I understanding correctly that you're saying that the water this year in the Gulf of Maine, especially this section of the Gulf of Maine, was cooler? Because of the polar ice caps melting and the currents bringing down colder water,
1: that's my f- f- the thought. You know, I, I think we need to confirm that with oceanographers. But I did talk to Neil Pettigrew, and he said generally he thought that was right when when he was when he looked back looking back at the buoys.
0: And Neil Pettigrew
1: um, is a uh, he is the okay. man who manages the the ocean observing system buoys for the University of Maine. He's an oceanographer at uh, the University of Maine. But
2: I think it's also important to add that, you know, when, when you think about climate change, it's, uh, it's really important to consider short-term as long, as well as long-term trends. And so what you're reporting there is a short-term trend that, you know, I think, I, I personally think you're spot on with that hypothesis, but we, we have to find out. But the long-term trend, I'll just remind what something else that you just said was is that the Gulf of Maine is warming at an alarming rate. And there's a there's a fundamental rule in oceanography that cold water generally means more productive water. Uh, and when I say the word productive, again, I'm referring to the very base of the food chain where you have uh, phytoplankton, uh, so essentially plant-like plankton that is photosynthesizing and providing the food upon which all the other trophic levels of the ecosystem are depending. And, and we know... Um, you know, over the, the, the hundreds of the years that, w- that we can sort of account for ocean productivity, we know it varies naturally anyway. Um, but the disturbing, increasing trend, uh, with with almost no uh, with, with with no change in that that that's that's really concerning. Uh, for for me, uh, one of the one of the most important papers I've seen in the past two years uh, was a paper at the Rightwell Consortium last year where a Canadian researcher put together a meta-analysis, and that means essentially that he's bringing in data from all different kinds of studies and drawing them together to make a bigger picture. And this meta-analysis was specifically about a kind of zooplankton called a copepod, which is a really, really important link in the trophic chain uh, that transfers uh, essentially plant energy or photosynthetic energy up to the higher levels. Uh, And this... This, um, this study demonstrated that starting at the Gulf of Maine and moving north up towards Newfoundland, the copepods are getting bigger and bigger as you go to Newfoundland. So um, the Gulf of Maine's ability to grow large copepods appears to be affected by this warming trend. And that's, that's, that's huge because um, we have whales that come up to the Gulf of Maine, as you've heard, that depend upon the Gulf of Maine as this area to feed. They're either feeding directly on the plankton, or they're feeding on things that feed on the plankton. And if the if the plankton is not as calorifically rich, um, they're not going to get the, the 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 energy, the calories, the diet that they need in order to perform. You know, the lifestyle that they have to have carbs and so on. Um, so I think added to Zach's hypothesis, which sort of explains at least what happened this year, the general trend over the years, and I think Zach would agree we've been seeing less and less finbacks over the years um, is, is that I think whales are either coming to the Gulf of Maine and not getting what they need or they are not even bothering going to the Gulf of Maine because it's they, they, you know, they're starting to understand that this is not a place where they're going to find their food. And instead they're moving further north where the waters are colder and generally more productive. Uh, and so we are seeing, I think, a fundamental change in the distribution of the the baleen whales. Uh, so that's the you know the the right whales, the blue whales, the humpbacks, and so on, and the finbacks. Uh, we're seeing them move; um, that their distributions are changing quite dramatically. I think.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio. Um, I am your host, Natalie Springle, from the University of Maine Sea Grant. Uh, today, our show is about whales in the Northwest Atlantic, in the Gulf of Maine, and we'll talk about the Gulf of St. Lawrence in a few minutes. Um, and uh, in the studio with me today, you were just hearing Sean Todd, who is the director of Allied Whale, the Marine Mammal Research Lab at College of the Atlantic. And we also are joined by Zach Cliver, who's the lead naturalist at um, Bar Harbor Whale Watch and the founder of Flukes International Whale Tours. Um, So we've been talking about changes in the Gulf of Maine, both short-term changes and longer climate-related changes in the Gulf of Maine. And we've talked a little bit about um, the the regular characters that we see in the Gulf being humpback whales and finback whales and others. Um, Let's switch gears a little bit to right whales, um, if we could. So right whales occur occasionally in the Gulf of Maine, and I'll let you guys explain all of that. Um, But I know that a lot of our listeners have been seeing the headlines over the course of the summer, where it seems like every week or two or three, um, there's a report of a white right whale carcass found floating um, somewhere in this northwest region, northwest Atlantic region. So tell us a little bit about the right whales themselves and how that population is doing, and then we'll talk a little bit about these um, sort of dramatic mortality events. Zach.
1: Yes, the, the well, the right whale population when they first started censusing them, um, they think may have been hovering around three hundred. And this goes back about 30 years ago. And over time, we have generally been seeing a small increase in that population. There's been an upward uh, trend. And uh, back in 2010 and 11, it reached, uh, or right around that time, it reached, uh, I think, just over 500 animals, it was estimated, in the population. Uh, Since then, we've seen a downturn in the population. And historically, uh, right whales are found in the Gulf of Maine. Uh, they're kind of like our our whale for the Gulf of Maine because they're here year-round in the Gulf of Maine, uh, but... Uh, Many of the females, especially, and some males, will go down to Florida and Georgia during the winter to give birth to their young. So they kind of move between, historically, the Bay of Funday and uh, Florida and Georgia. And they're very exposed to a very urban environment, as it's been defined by Scott Krause, who's the lead researcher for the New England Aquarium. And wrote a book called the urban whale uh running this this gauntlet of ships and and fishing gear and 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 uh you know uh increasingly um uh more developed kind of coastline um they, they tend to stay close to shore often in, that, in their movements um, going from, from north to south. Uh, so, one of the places where they spend a lot of time in the late summer is in the Bay of Funday. And in, in many years, um, uh, researchers working out of Lubeck from the New England Aquarium in Boston would see as many as uh, 200 individual right whales up there that they could identify. And they might on some days see as many as 100 right whales. Uh, in recent years, that has just just plummeted. you know um, I think last year they had seventy, but the year before just seven individuals up there over the whole season. This year, it was up to thirty five again but they're disappearing from that area and the question is where have they been going and we now uh, understand that a lot of them are moving north up into the St Lawrence and this gets back to what Sean was talking about with the with the lack of plankton that we th- we think has generally been a trend since the 2010-11 which also has resulted there's a there's a direct correlation between plankton productivity and fecundity you know how how successful the females are there's a there tends to be a two year lag i think where in years of great plankton, uh, two years later you'll have a lot of calves, and, and there was a period where, in some years, we were having as many as thirty calves, new calves born into the population, which was super exciting. But now that's not the case. It's it's a handful of animals that are being born every year.
2: Uh, yeah, the uh, because right whales uh, are a little unusual compared to rockels, uh which are the baleen, uh, the the uh, the humpback and the finback. Um, right whales feed very specifically low down the trophic chain, so they're very, very close to that phytoplankton base layer. You know, the, the copepods that they feed upon, that we were talking about earlier on, um, feed on that on those plants. So, or that plant-like material. So, what we have here essentially is a canary in the coal mine. We have a, an animal that reacts far more immediately to things that are going on oceanographically in the Gulf of Maine than we would say a, a humpback or a finback whale. Which are maybe a couple of trophic levels uh, higher, and therefore there's more noise, more statistical stochasticity between those things. So you might not see as dramatic a change in those things. So the right whale is now able to look at; it is absolutely critically endangered, um, and we've been because there are so few of them, we can we can count them fairly accurately. So we now have some pretty close error bars associated with our population estimates for this animal. And as Zach said, they have. Uh, our, our conservation efforts appeared to be working, and we had a population that was um, dramatically impacted by whaling, but slowly returning. Um, we, you know, we got to that 500 number, and people were starting to feel very, fairly good about it. And then, at these consortium meetings that happen every year, people starting to comment, "Well, yes, we have some, we have numbers, but these whales are not looking in particularly good shape. The body condition is going down. We're getting thinner and thinner whales." Um, we were starting to understand the effects of fisheries entanglement, uh, the chronic effects you know it 's not just the actual entanglement itself, but the whale is affected by the entanglement for for months, possibly years afterwards so the the whales were going downhill um, and the, the The obvious smoking gun here is climate change and I, and I think it 's this important to point out to your listeners that outside of political circles, climate change is a fact you know we, we don't we don 't dispute it The data are there they 're very strong. Um, the climate is changing. Um, so, you know, regardless of what the politicians say, <laughs> we, we have very good data for this. Uh, and um, I, I know when I say that, that might sound a little bit controversial, but this is something that we are looking at the effects of year after year.
0: And uh, what what's happening this summer? What, what just happened? I think we, we, we've read in the media up to 14 um 16 16 <clears throat> right whales found dead between Cape Cod and the Gulf of St Lawrence
1: mm-hmm.
0: help us tease out uh, wh- what the facts are about what's been observed
1: uh well we had a couple of right whales in the early part of the season uh die in in the Gulf of Maine uh I think both uh, individuals, if I understand, were they thought were related to ship strikes, had blunt trauma, uh, and one was a young calf off of Cape Cod. Uh, then, you, in June, around the middle of June, uh, up in the St. Lawrence, we started getting reports. You know, for a while, it was almost daily of of uh, dead right whales, and. Um, <clears throat> Ultimately, they had 12 individuals die in the St. Lawrence area, just above Prince Edward Island and over towards the coast of Newfoundland in that area, up at the up top of the St. Lawrence, Gulf of St. Lawrence. And then two more have died in the States since then, so now we're at 16.
0: Including one just two weeks ago, right, off of Cape Pot, Cod was located?
1: Exactly, yeah. A young animal that came ashore near uh, Woods Hole. And, and this event was stunning,
2: absolutely stunning. We, we, you know, we we're dealing with a population that is low anyway. Um, when you look inside that population, there are only 100 females left because the, the the sex ratio is skewed in the population. So we now only have 100 females left to to repopulate uh, this ocean uh, with with the right whales, uh, and and to to lose 16 in the space of you know, f- three to four months was just stunning that uh, the scientific community was in shell shock, you know, not mm-hmm. only, um, just looking for reasons as to why this has happened, but, you know, a lot of us, um, become quite emotionally involved in the cause. Uh, and, uh, it was, it was a very, very dreary day. Uh, and, uh, I actually, at one point I was kind of frustrated cause I was preparing presentations and, uh, one particular presentation took like three or four days to bring together And every day I came back and I had to modify the number again because like, oh, we've lost another one. Oh, we've lost another one. And it was just, it was a very, very, very hard year for the right whale community Uh, and especially for Canada. And I, you know, I I feel bad for Canada because a lot of the Canadian scientists feel like, well, this happened on their watch. Um, but you, you can't blame them totally because this is, this, this is just unprecedented to see these kinds of animals going up to that area. And, you know, they just, they just weren't, they weren't as accustomed to having to deal with right whales. As we have been in the Gulf of Maine.
0: And just for a sense of scale, um, on, an, on an average given year, what do you expect to see for numbers of mortality?
1: I think it's 3.8 is the average number, although according to U.S. law, uh, the potential biological removal for the <coughs> is at zero. I mean, we shouldn't be taking any, but annually there's still a, a few uh, die of ship strikes and entanglements.
0: And um, Thanks. And so, Sean, I want to probe a little bit deeper. Um, You were saying the Canadians aren't used to seeing this number of right whales up there. So it seems like there's a correlation between the changes that are happening in the Gulf of Maine and the long-term warming of the Gulf of Maine, the whales moving north in search of food, and they're moving into an area that maybe isn't um, quite as focused on managing human uses of that area uh, in favor of the right whales. Can you can you sort of tease that out a little bit for us?
2: I think that is certainly the most parsimonious and obvious hypothesis to explain what is going on. Um, the, the business of actually determining cause of death of a right whale, which is kind of like the final piece of data that you need um, to, to to put some solidity in that hypothesis, uh, that Necropsies are very complex, very uh, gory. Um, and what is a necropsy? So that's a that's a an animal autopsy to determine cause of death. Um, they're difficult to do. They're logistically an absolute nightmare, especially when you're dealing with an animal that large. Um, even the the mere act of trying to bring a dead whale at sea ashore is it's 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 very very hard work, and you you need to mobilize resources very very quickly. It's a large ocean. You can lose the carcasses quickly, and so uh, one of the one of the frustrating things about this whole incident is is that we we lost a lot of carcasses. Um, by we I mean the scientific community. We lost a lot of carcasses before we could even look at them, uh, simply because. Um, because Canada wasn't used to um, this level of mortality, it took time for them to figure out, well, how are we going to mobilize our resources to, to get the carcasses? How are we going to mobilize the people to get to the beaches to actually do the cuts and so on? Uh, I think by the end of this summer, I don't think anyone's better qualified now than the Canadians because, you know, they had so many so so many practice runs to get it right. Uh, and, you know, and again, I, again I, I'm not calling down my Canadian colleagues at all. They do a fantastic job out there with the, with with uh, with very limited resources, so uh, it's, it's it's really good to call them colleagues, and I'm glad they were there to do what they did. And so the the, the data that they've got from 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 the autopsies that they did manage to perform, um, four animals clearly died from ship strike, and two animals clearly died from fishery entanglement. And then you you align that with the fact that um, the shipping lane going into the Gulf of St Lawrence, eventually end up in Montreal, uh, is a very very busy shipping lane. And uh, you know, typically not used to seeing right whales here in the Gulf of Maine. Uh, we have sighting networks that advise mariners when there are right whales in the area. We have mandatory um, uh, slow slow speed zones, so uh, so ships have to slow down uh, in certain areas, whether or not there's a right whale. And they also have to slow down when a right whale has been announced uh, on on the on the, um, on, the on the ships' uh, notification systems. Um, here in the Gulf of Maine, we have modified fisheries to try and make whale gear more whale safe, um, whatever that means. Um, you know, the, one can debate the success of that, but certainly we have made the effort to try and make whale gear more safe. Up in Canada, you know, they've not gone through the politics of that particular situation. So there was a, there was a particular fishery up there, the snow crab fishery, which was right in the middle of where these right whales were. Uh, and um, these pots are not like lobster pots these are big heavy pots that weigh a lot and the the amount of drag that they force on a right whale if you get tangled up in their gear is enormous and is something like equivalent to what was it Zach about three years worth of energy I mean it was just a Mm -hmm. it was a phenomenal amount of extra energy the animal had to find somewhere to swim entangled in these pots so you know no wonder they're dying um, they're simply not. They, they, they just can't. They can't move around. Can't do the things they need to do, given the amount of fishing gear they got
1: wrapped on them. And, and Mo Brown um, uh, at the uh, consortium, uh, Canadian uh, long-term right whale researcher. Uh, described this as a perfect storm uh that happened this year with this movement of right whales into this area uh they doubled the snow crab fishery there was a 14 percent increase in shipping in the st lawrence and so all these factors kind of came together and i think it was a very concentrated whale whales were very concentrated in that area and you know canada did respond eventually they pulled a lot of the gear out of the water they slowed ships down and and there was a, there's a team of scientists from Dalhousie that monitors the ship speeds in areas where they where they reduce the ship speed to 10 knots or less which we found is very effective in saving right whales from being hit and uh, they had 98% compliance uh, once they once they moved to do that but uh, it was just it was a challenge because they, as Sean said they just were not prepared for that level of you know interaction up there
2: and, and, I, and I guess this—the last thing I would say about this—is is that the U.S. is not totally off the hook here. Uh, we still did have four animals die in U.S. waters, and uh, you know that's—I think—that's simply reflective of the baseline of mortalities that we have here, because we still have not totally fixed the problem down here either. You know, in spite of all the, the management uh, adjustments we've made in terms of how ships um, operate in the area and how we set fishing gear, um, we still do get entanglements so and we still do get ship strikes. So it's not totally fixed in the U.S. either. So I don't, I don't mean to to, to to suggest that you know we have it figured out here. I'm just simply saying I think we're a little bit further down the road than the Canadians are right now because we've had to historically deal with right whales for a lot longer than they have.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations. Uh, I'm your host, Natalie Springle from the University of Maine Sea Grant program. We're talking about whales in the northwest Atlantic specifically in the Gulf of Maine and the Gulf of St. Lawrence and some of the mortality events that have happened this past season especially. Um, My guests in the studio are Zach Cliver, the lead naturalist from Bar Harbor Whale Watch, and Sean Todd, uh, the director of Allied Whale, the Marine Mammal Research Group at College of the Atlantic. I just want to let you know, listeners, that this is a pre-recorded show, so we're not taking any calls today. Um, We were just talking about what makes the Gulf of St. Lawrence different from a, almost, ai am going to call it a management perspective than the Gulf of Maine uh, in terms of how humans use that waterway. Um, w- one of the questions that has come up for me, I feel like I read somewhere that there was a, a conjecture that some of these mortality events might be also due to a different reason being red tide. Hmm. Is, that, is that off base?
2: uh it's 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 certainly uh, we have had animals die from red tide um, in fact, one of the first mass strands we ever had of uh, baleen whales in the Gulf of Maine was supposedly a, a red tide or maybe a brown tide event um so 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 that listeners know there are certain algae out there that, under the right conditions, will bloom into millions and create a concentration. Of uh, of toxins that they naturally produce that then are consumed uh, by higher level predators and then that gets passed up through the food chain and then you know that's the reason why uh, for example certain shell uh, shellfish um, fisheries are closed on a on a on an occasional basis because you know the red tide levels are too high and if you were to consume those um, it would be poisonous to you um, so it's it's certainly something you have to consider um, however um, we do monitor for those things and there's nothing. Nothing special this year about red tide events as far as I know. I'm looking at Zach and he's shaking his head as well saying, yeah, he doesn't open them either. Um, so it's certainly something we look for when we cut up an animal. Um, there's ways for us to sample uh, the tissues to, to look to see if they've been um, um, poisoned by, uh, by red tide. Um, but that's not been the case. At least the, the, the data I've seen have not suggested that at all.
0: Um, we've talked a little bit about necropsies. Um, I've witnessed a little bit of it, um, but can you paint a picture of how a necropsy happens? Maybe walk us through. Uh, I know that you have managed a few right here off of Mount Desert Island in the last few years.
2: It's um, it's a community level event uh, when you're when you're working with an animal, you know that's fifty or sixty feet long. Uh, You can't do it on your own. You have to bring in typically something somewhere between 50 and 100 volunteers to do this. Uh, The animal, because of its morphology, typically strands on its back. So what you have available to you is the belly. And so if you need to get something else, you have to cut through the belly to get to it. Um, So uh, what we would do is we use um, incredibly sharp knives that blunt within about 20 minutes of use. So a typical necropsy team will have a couple of cutters and then they'll have one person and all they're doing is sharpening the blades. Um, you're cutting into an animal that has a blubber jacket that is so effective that the minute the animal dies, necrosis, the decay of tissues is happening and that's creating all these foul gases that get locked inside the animals so it's a very smelly um i'm, I'm glad this is a radio show and not a tv show because <laughs> the, the gore uh is just absolutely disgusting and the smell is terrific um but it's the you 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 get used to it and you you kind of get lost in it i, I find necropsies you know, if, if you can put aside the tragedy of, of the death of the animal, they are absolutely fascinating things um, from many, many different levels. The logistics of how you cut up an animal and um, and collect information in such a way that you can determine the cause of death, that's one thing. Um, cutting up an animal that is a mammal like you or I and, you know, realizing that that large Volkswagen bug-sized organ is its heart, and you have a heart that's exactly the same. It's still four-chambered, just a lot smaller. Um, it's, um, it's a fascinating and very, very tiring process. And typically, we get most of our, our large well strandings in the summer when it's hot. Um, so you're having to deal with that as well. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's absolutely not something you undertake casually, and it's expensive to do. We have to rent heavy equipment to help us do it. And um, so typically at the, at the college, if we do something like a necropsy, we are using funding from the, uh, from the federal government to help us do that.
0: It's a, uh, a gruesome description, but helps you determine how an animal died.
2: Yes, essentially you're looking for cause of death, and the the longer the animal has 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 been dead, uh, the more decay happens in the tissues, and therefore the harder it is to find that cause of death. But there are there are certain things you can look for. So, for example, the first thing we do when we arrive at an animal is we look for uh, linear impressions or scars across the skin which would indicate uh, a line perhaps had had been wrapped around the animal and perhaps had uh, since fallen off or been removed. Uh, We can sample underneath that line to look for patterns of bruising. Um, If the animal shows sign of bruising underneath that line, then that's clear proof that this animal was alive when that line was on there, because once the animal dies, the blood's not going to mobilize towards that area. Uh, similarly, if you, if you look at this animal and you see there's a bone broken uh, or there's a, a massive hematoma or bruise under the tissues, um, you know that that's from a blunt force uh, impact that had to have happened around the time of death, what we call perimortem or premortem, before death, uh, because again, the animal's blood were not mobilised to that particular area if it was if it was dead. Um, so those those are ways that we can look for signs of ship strike, for example, or look or, or for net entanglement. Uh, and in some cases, and these are particularly gory, um, you can actually see the where the propeller has cut an animal, and you get these very characteristic s-shaped curves. Uh, which we can diagnose down to the level of the propeller, the, the type of propeller that caused that, that cut. And again, if you see bleeding and hematoma and trauma associated with those cuts, you know that didn't happen after the animal was dead. Um, so you can be pretty definitive in cause of death under the right circumstances.
0: You mentioned the, um, that one of the things that you can detect is if a whale has been entangled based on bruising or even scarring. Um, so I know that there are uh, m- many efforts to disentangle whales before it's too late for those whales. Um, and in Canada, and I'm going to look to Zach to help us flesh out this story a little bit, I know that um, fishermen are often involved in helping disentangle whales. And um, we also heard in the media this past summer that one of the fishermen from Campobello Island, our neighbors just on the other side of the border, um passed away during a disentanglement effort. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened?
1: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, the gentleman's name was Joe Howlett, and he was a lobster fisherman uh, from Campobello who was very beloved on the island and uh, had a big family and uh, had been uh, one of the co-founders of uh, the Campobello Whale Rescue. And over the last uh, 15 years, they have rescued dozens of whales, um, and uh, it was a fisherman effort, right? So the fishermen have a lot of skills handling uh, boats and handling equipment on the water and line. And uh, so in Canada, they've they've allowed them to be designated to to do that. Joe uh, was uh, captaining a research trip up into the to the uh, Gulf of Saint Lawrence, uh, and. He uh, was helping uh, survey for right whales because they they thought maybe the right whales would be up there. So they they had already made this commitment before the season to send a vessel up there, and he was going to captain the vessel. Uh, he had a crew from the New England Aquarium on board, and uh, early on they found you know there were fi- there were also five entangled whales up there in the St. Lawrence. That, uh, and one of the whales they found, and he being certified to disentangle, they launched a zodiac from the larger vessel and went out and they rescued that whale. Well, a few, they're very excited about that. A few days later, they, they found another severely entangled right whale, and, uh, they made a number of approaches, a number of cuts, and finally he went in to make a last cut, which he did make and free the whale, but I guess all that tension released a lot of, uh, uh, power in the whale 's tail and it rolled and flipped its tail out of the water and it came crashing mm-hmm. down on him and uh killed him um, so it was a that was another part of this summer that made it very a very tough year for right whale scientists and scientists around the world you know and people in the conservation movement to think that we lost this 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 terrific uh ambassador for for whale rescue
2: yeah the um uh, disentanglement uh, is, 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 is a dangerous business and uh, we've spent a lot of time trying to develop tools and strategies and techniques that minimize the amount of danger uh, to the people that do it uh, and uh, it, it, in my mind it turns out that I think fishermen are probably some of the best people to do this just because they know lines they know how to operate a boat on the water safely and they know about the water uh, in Canada there's much more of a grassroots through the fishermen uh, movement to do something like well disentanglement in the United States. It's very different. It's sort of federally driven, so it's, t- it's a top-down approach. It's done through a permit, uh, and um, you know the the federal government licenses certain people to do it. So there are two very different ways between Canada and the U.S. of of how this is done. Um, I, I will just quickly say that I think all of us in the business agree that we want to get out of the business of a disentanglement as quickly as possible because it is dangerous and it's. Um, it's kind of not the point. It's kind of a band-aid. Um, you know, the problem is, is that we have fishing gear there in the first place, that for whatever reason is not uh, whale-safe. And what we need to do is modify our fishing practices uh, to 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 make it more safe for, for right whales operating in the area and humpback whales, which also get entangled. Um, and, and that um, we've been extremely lucky. Uh, and, you know, the, the tragedy of Joe is just absolutely terrible. It hit us really, really hard. Um, but to, to tell you the truth, it's kind of surprising that we haven't had more serious injuries up to this point, and that's simply just a testament to the quality of the people that have been working this business for a very, very long time. Um, they're extraordinarily dedicated. They're very well trained, and they try to be as safe as possible. Mm-hmm. And you know, as someone who did this for you know 15 years, uh, and, and I'm kind of glad to be out of that business now. Because and this,
0: you uh, you you were engaged d- in disentanglement. Doing
2: disentanglement, yeah. It's um. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's uh, it's it's a dangerous business, and we we don't want to be in it. We we really have to, you know, it's, it's a band aid on top of the on top of the problem. We need to address the actual cause itself.
0: Um, what's the prognosis for the future for right whales?
2: Well, um, the Gulf of Maine is continuing to do what it's doing. It's continuing to to warm, as far as we can tell. Uh, we are actually about to embark on a new study next year, a five-year study that will be looking at a combination of the oceanography, um, the state of the plankton, the state of the prey base uh, that we have for whales, as well as what the whales are feeding on themselves to hopefully put some, some real solid data behind the hypotheses we've been discussing here today. Uh, and uh, so we'll, we'll see where that goes. I think Canada, um, you know, now knows what to do with right whales and so uh they're much better set up Uh, a lot we had a lot of conversations this last week um with our colleagues up in canada and i think there's some there's there's a system in place now now they know uh what has to happen um they've made the they've made the network they've created the resources um so um they're gonna be a lot more prepared to respond quickly in this situation
0: And uh, Zach, before our show, you mentioned to me uh, the potential changes in the Marine Mammal Protection Act. Can you um, give us a sense of what's happening there um, as a a way to sort of give our listeners an opportunity to think about how they might get engaged?
1: Mm. Um, Well, uh, the seismic industry has been long interested in expanding their uh, ability to to uh, do seismic testing for oil uh, and energy resources in the ocean, and they have um, been able to get the attention of a congressman who's put forth a bill that would would change the Marine Mammal Protection Act, uh, which has been so successful in in helping these stocks of of whales to recover and help you know create some kind of uh, legal framework for their for this this long-term recovery uh, so there there's a new uh, bill that's being put forward that would change a lot of the marine mammal Protection Act in really dramatic ways and so there's a lot of concern about that uh, right now uh, it's a great opportunity for people to, to go and uh, and and uh, comment if they want to um, uh, write a com- comment uh, to uh, congressional representative. And uh, some of the organizations that are really um, behind this would be uh, Oceana and uh, the Natural Resources Defense Council are are two organizations you could look to for information about that.
0: Great. Thank you, Zach. Sean, any parting words?
2: Well, I would just, I would just mirror what Zach's just said. Um, you know, we, we as a, as a, as a people in the United States have decided uh, to place value on marine mammals. Uh, we did this back in 1972 with the Marine Mammal Protection Act, later on with the Endangered Species Act. Uh, we clearly have sent a message to our governments that we believe these are animals that are, are important to us and they're, they're worth saving. Uh, you know, in the case of the right whale, we're in a fairly dire situation now where it's not just the fact that we have 450 animals but we have only 100 females left in that population that is absolutely dire and we we need we need to act so it's really important to uh to continue asking questions continue to support resort the resource the organizations that are looking for these a lot of these government a lot of these organizations work through federal funding so it's important to support that funding and it's you know it's important to remember that the bottom line is, is the legislation that's going to help to drive this. So um, I, I would really encourage people to go to the the websites of the organisations that Zach mentioned and, and consider how how you would vote for those things um, because these are these are remarkable animals and um, I, I've never I've never say, every every time I go on a whale watch and I see people see whales for the first time the grin on their face is just worth it. They realise the value of these animals. So uh, really important to get out there and, and, and make be, be active in your choices about what we want to do with this population.
0: Thank you both so much. Amazingly, we've come to the end of our coastal conversation today. We could have talked a lot longer and I'm sorry for our listeners that we couldn't make this a call-in show because I have a feeling you all have a lot more questions Maybe we'll try to get these two guys back on for a uh, live in the studio show so you get a chance to ask your questions. Um, Specifically, I'd like to thank Sean Todd, the director of the Marine Mammal Research Group, Allied Whale at College of the Atlantic, and Zach Cliver, the lead naturalist at Bar Harbor Whale Watch Company and founder of um, Flukes, an international tour group. Um, Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant program at the University of Maine Bringing marine science to Maine people Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month Our December show will be about oysters Um, Our show's theme music, A Following Sea was composed and performed by Paul Anderson Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our show And stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning